Bows and TKOs, we are live. Episode 31 on this beautiful Tuesday evening in the Valley. Getting ready to head to a Suns-Kings game with my cousin this evening here in Phoenix. So that should be a lot of fun. All the mega superstars that are on the Suns and Kings. And uh, first time seeing De'Aaron Fox, DeMontis, Sabonis, and crew. Uh, but enough of that. We are ready for episode 31. I'm your host, Shane Gillette. We are going to recap the UFC Fight Night 84 card that happened. Preview the uh, first pay-per-view of the year. Sean Strickland looking to defend his title for the first time at UFC 297 in Toronto, back in Canada. And we also have a title fight uh, on the women's side of things for the Bantamweight Championship, Myra Bueno Silva versus Raquel Pennington. So we're going to talk that and much more MMA news. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, the past week of my life and in sports, my Pittsburgh Steelers suffered defeat to the very good Buffalo Bills, Wyoming's own Josh Allen. That's who I'll be rooting for the rest of the way. I'm glad that they at least made it somewhat com competitive, showed some heart. Uh, but otherwise than that, I mean... NFL playoffs are going in. Lots of upsets. The Texans beating the Browns. The Bucks smoking the Eagles. As well as the Packers smoking them boys, the Cowboys. Traditional Cowboys. I don't know why I ever bet on them. They're always going to find a way to choke it out in the playoffs. But it was nice having UFC back this weekend. Super stoked to have a pay-per-view event back. And you got to enjoy it because we have another week off and then plenty of MMA action. But let's talk about some of the fights that have been booked since last week. Uh, the April 6th card filling out a little bit. We have Norma Dumont taking on Jermaine Durandamy. First time Jermaine has been back in quite some time. Really excited to see her back in the octagon facing a very good Norma Dumont. In bantamweight, we have Ignacio Bahamondes taking on Christos Giagos. That should be a fun uh, stylistic clash in April, as well as Sungwoo Choi taking on Morgan Scherer, uh, Scherier. You know, he's from Paris. He's French. No idea how to say that name. Scherier, probably, um, who looked really good in his last Paris bout. Um, so coming back in in April. March 23rd, uh, we have the heavyweight showdown between Mohamed Usman, Kamaro's younger, bigger brother, and uh, Chris Barnett, uh, Chris Barnett's always a great time in the octagon. And then March 30th, we have Sean Brady, Vicente Luque. That has banger written all over it. So really excited about that fight. And then literally just minutes before I came on, uh, I saw that Mackenzie Dern is in for Tatiana Suarez taking on Amanda Lemos, UFC 298. Really bummed to see that Tatiana Suarez is pulling out due to injury. Not too sure what, what, what the injury is at this uh, moment in time. I'm sure there will be more news later. But uh, Tatiana battled from injuries, long-time layoff. Has come in, looked like a world beater. But Mackenzie Dern getting another opportunity after a brutal second-round TKO against um, Jessica Andrade. So let's see if she can defeat a very hard-hitting Amanda Lemos in Anaheim. Other than that, we had Tai Tuavasa and Marcin Tibera. Uh, moved from the UFC Anaheim card to March 16th, so that won't be on the pay-per-view anymore. And then on the MMA MMA hour, I believe yesterday on Monday, 
Yuri Prashaka revealed that he had battled uh, a nasty staph infection that started from his leg, went up to his ear, and due to the antibiotics that he was on, he wasn't able to train properly, barely at all, five weeks before the fight. Um, you know, he, he talks about that warrior spirit. Well, that had kept him from pulling out of the fight. He had talked about John Jones fighting injured and other people. He wanted to get the job done, and he still performed at a pretty decent level. Um, it would be very interesting to see what that fight would have been like if he had the full preparation. I mean, staff's a nasty thing. I've never had it, thank God. Um, but I, I know it can defeat your immune system. Gordon Ryan had just made a post, uh, the best um, no-gi grappler out there, um, about staph infection, how that basically wiped out his stomach, all the stomach issues he's had. He's had a pull out of ADCC. Um, so, you know, I was calling for a fight of the year candidate, was really, you know, motivated for that fight. Didn't quite turn out the way I wanted it to. But there was a lot of good exchanges in that first round. That just adds to the Yuri Prashaka legacy. He takes on Alexander Rakich, another very interesting guy coming back from injury very soon. So lots of intrigue there. I can't wait to see how that plays out in the future for Yuri. Uh, he's only like 30. And then UFC Riyadh in Saudi Arabia, March 2nd is postponed to June. Uh, apparently, the Saudis wanted a stronger card uh, with all the big boxing abouts and what we're about to announce, the PFL Bellator Supercard. Uh, I guess I could understand why. Um, in boxing news, the winner of Anthony Joshua and Francis Ngannou in February, I believe that fight is, maybe eight March, will fight the winner of the Tyson Fury Alexander Usyk fight, which takes place in February. So boxing really, Ngannou kind of revitalized it. New bouts, new opportunities, the big time fights. Never thought we'd see Alexander and Tyson, especially with the you know retirement and everything else that he went through. So the heavyweight boxing world is flourishing. Thank you, Francis Ngannou. Uh, we also have a grappling event this weekend, the ADCX2, uh, the newly grappling league, uh, developed grappling league out of Abu Dhabi. Going down this Friday, a majority of the main, of, uh, the, the main fights here are three three-minute rounds. I think the main event is five three-minute rounds. A lot of BJJ specialists doing gi competitions, but we'll just knock out the big names that are in the UFC we have Aljamain Sterling taking on Chase Hooper. Uh, that should be a fun, fun grappling matchup. It looks like they're um, boosting their weight, not having to cut weight too much. So just a, a fun grappling exchange. We'll have Terrence McKinney and Sydney Outlaw, as well as Douglas Lima and Renat Fakhradinov. So I love how the ADCX2 has been putting a lot of big UFC names in. Something to watch, something for guys who are in between fights that want to keep maybe cutting weight or keep that competition spirit alive and just focus on their grappling, they have that chance. But probably the biggest news is we had a announcement of a potential PFL Supercard where Bellator champions take on PFL champions, rumored in uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, Riyadh this year. Well, it is official today, February 21st, 24th, and I have never be, been so excited about anything PFL or Bellator. Uh, the one versus Risen um, and the Risen versus Bellator had always been fun. Uh, the PFL sometimes had some decent matchups and Bellator as well, but they usually underperformed. I had talked to you guys about it. I got excited about it. I watched it. I paid for it, watched it on Showtime, and they just never delivered. So I've never really been pulled in 
to become a massive PFL or Bellator fan or one championship. If it's ever going to happen, it's going to be this one. But if you do look at the matchups, I do think they're quite lopsided. And some of the non-championship matchups may be better, in my opinion. So let's start off. At heavyweight, we have Bellator champ Ryan Bader. PFL champ Renan Ferreira. I'm going with the young Renan from PFL. I think this is one of the better stylistic matchups. Bader's been around the block quite some time. Hasn't had a lot of stiff competition in Bellator. I think Renan is probably the, the biggest ceiling out of all heavyweights. PFL Bellator and a potential fight against Nganu in the future, especially if he takes down Bader here, and that's what I'm going for. We got probably one of the better non-UFC talents, Johnny Eblen, who trains with Sean Strickland at Extreme Couture, and that, that, that full team they got. He's taking on Impa Kasagane. Impa, amazing story. I think Johnny Eblen's going to handle that matchup very well. And then, uh, and Johnny Eblen is from Bellator Impa from uh, PFL. We have Patricio Pitbull taking on Jesus Pinedo. Uh, Patricio Pitbull, I think, should handle that one quite easily. Patricio being the Bellator champ. We got Bellator champ Jason Jackson taking on PFL champ Megomed, Megomed Kiramov. So we'll predict those and dive into those later. Um, that one might be a pretty solid matchup, although stylistically... Grappler versus striker. And then on the prelims, they're pretty stacked as well. Bruno Capaloza and Vadim Nemkov. But this is going down at heavyweight. I love me some Vadim, ne Vadim Nemkov. This one should be very fun. A lot of ex-UFC talent in this matchup. Tiago Santos, Yoel Romero. Two scary hard-hitting dudes. That should be a ton of fun. And just really good talent here. We have Clay Collard and AJ McKee. Those two fights are three fights are probably better some, than some of the main events. We have Gabriel Braga, Aaron Pico, and um, not official yet, but supposedly Clarissa Shields, boxer turned MMA uh, fighter, is expected to be on the card. So, what a stacked card! PFL trying to remain relevant. The Saudi backed league is doing the damn thing. But let's jump into the action we had in the UFC this weekend. First week back after the long layoff. UFC Fight Night Vegas 84. Here at Boza, TKO's 8-2 on the weekend. Not mad about it. Starting the year 8-2. That puts the overall record 31 episodes in at 201 wins, 87 losses, and 3 um, draws slash no contests. So not bad. More than doubled the wins. Just keep stacking dubs on dubs. Some good fights we did not break down. Joshua Van continuing to have slow starts, but really just clean house in the second round. He had a round two TKO over Felipe Bunes, Bunes. And then Nicholas Moda, the underdog, with a massive round one TKO over Tom Nolan. He was a plus 275 underdog. Love to see it, Nicholas and then Gene Silva with a round one TKO, nasty TKO. I think he was like minus 900 favorite favorite over Weston Wilson. Uh, they did not look like <laughs> Weston did not belong in a UFC octagon at all. And then bummer news, Manel Cop missing weight, three and a half pounds over. You know, he's had so many bouts canceled, had weight issues already. And this is the rematch. Mathus Nicolau and him, his rematch off due to the weight cut miss 
And that's not a slight miss, especially in a flyweight division. Big advantage there. Um, Methus kind of slandered him on social media saying this is common. He did not try. He showed up 30 minutes before the end of weigh-ins and was not trying to cut weight. Manel made a post about him fighting a sickness, couldn't cut weight, blah, blah, blah. But where there's smoke, there's fire. Manel Cop has been an issue. And a rematch win here, he was right in the mix of title contention, so he can't blame anybody but himself. That's part of the job. And when you do it inconsistently, you're, you're never going to be a champion. But let's jump in to the fights we did break down. What a performance. What a fight, really. In the prelims, we had Fareed Basharat with a unanimous decision over Taylor Lapolis. And this was a fight that pretty much you know, laid out the way you would expect. We did pick Fareed here, got the win. One of the eight wins on the predictions. And what a just overall well performance by Fareed, man. These Basharat brothers are going to be a problem. The pace that he put on Taylor... You could tell that he respected the striking and kickboxing ability that Taylor possesses. And, you know, that's a very smart game plan by him. Fareed's goal was, I am going to break this guy down. I'm going to out-cardio him through the course of three rounds, take down opportunities, striking him, overwhelming him with combos, keeping him on his back foot. And due to that, he had the opportunities for takedowns. He was able to have some control time. And I was impressed with the takedown defense early that Taylor showcased, as well as getting taken down by such a high-level grappler. He would find his way to the cage, found his way up top. You know, there's definitely a game plan of just breaking the hands, breaking the locks, getting up against the cage, not giving your back up that fighters have possessed, and it's a lot harder to take guys down and control them unless you are in the middle of the octagon where they can't get up against the cage. So I was really impressed with how Taylor showcased this here. But Fareed is a cardio machine, solid striker, amazing grappler. At 135 pounds, him and his brother are going to be the real deal. Like he said in the post-fight interview, the Basharat takeover, don't doubt him. Statistically, Fareed landed 55 total strikes, 42 of them significant. He had five takedowns in 16 attempts. Again, shout out Taylor. Um, you know, about a third of his opportunities there, he was able to be successful. He did have a submission attempt in almost just a hair under seven minutes of total control time. So control Taylor for over the course of a round, uh, if you, if you add up the full time there. Now, Taylor, he landed 41 total and 40 significant strikes in this fight. So not a huge disparity of total strike volume. But the grappling, the takedowns, the control time was a huge difference for Fareed. So the undefeated Fareed extends his winning streak and unbeaten streak to 12. Four of those are in the UFC. Taylor ends his six-fight winning streak and starts a new losing streak. So Taylor is now 1-1 one one in his UFC return. So what's next for these gents? I would love to see Fareed, who is on one hell of a run, I'd love him to see him fight up in competition. I would love to see him take on a, uh, the likes of Montel Jackson or Victor Henry, you know, right around the 20th ranked bantamweights. And for Taylor, if Casey Kenny's fighting anytime soon, he's been out for two years, that would be a great fight, Taylor, Casey Kenny, or he could take on Damon Blackshear. Moving on, the MMA lab. Woo-wee! 
They have some savages at 135 pounds, and this dude is going to be a problem. Marcus McGee with a second-round TKO over Gaston Bolanos. Performance of the night, 50 Gs. And we didn't even break down this fight, but it was such a good performance. We're breaking it down post-fight night card, and I figured why not since the methus Manel cape fight got canceled anyways. I mean... Dude, Marcus deserves the spotlight. The bantamweight division is going to be on notice with these MMA lab badasses. You got Kyler Phillips, Sean O'Malley, the champion, Marcus McGee. You got um, uh, Mario Bautista, who we're talking about in a minute. And even dudes like Bryce Meredith, Wyoming wrestling stud in Bellator. There are so many more. But... Marcus's striking, I mean, elite. Gaston is a decent striker, a solid counter striker, but Marcus was throwing bombs and combos in Gaston's face through the entire fight, so much so that Gaston didn't have a chance to counter. Usually when Marcus would come at you, Gaston likes to have those big leg kicks back and a combo to push you back up against the cage. Well, Marcus was sitting in the pocket and just outboxing the shit out of him and the heavy damage that he did, you know, Bolaños was smile at him, smiling at him and laughing at him. And Marcus is like, bro, you, you done fucked up. I got too much power for you. I'm going to get the finish. And that's exactly what happened in the second round. But a, a hearty, gritty uh, fight by Gaston. But Marcus McGee, man, he's going to be in the top 15 in no time. I think he's in his prime in, in his 30s too, young 30s. So statistically, Marcus landed 74 total strikes, 65 of those significant. He had one takedown and three attempts and a, and a knockdown as well. Gaston landed 28 total and significant strikes. So Marcus now extends his winning streak to five, three of those in the UFC. Gaston ends his two-fight winning streak and starts a new losing streak. Now, what's next? I mean... For Gaston, I think a fight with Muin Gafurov, that would make a ton of sense. The bantamweight division, again, in the UFC is on fire. I would love to see Marcus fight up in the rankings as well, like Fareed. Maybe Marcus, like a Cody Stamen or a Ronnie Yaya, I think those would be great opportunities for him and a, a more of a measuring stick for his skill and ability. Then kicking off in the prelims, we had the heavyweights, Waldo Cortez Acosta with a unanimous decision over Andre Orlovsky. And, you know, Orlovsky's on a skid now. You know, his age is starting to show. I mean, he's 45 years old, for Christ's sakes, taking on guys like Waldo. Although he's still not super technical and a little bit raw, he throws heat, he throws power, he's long, he's big-sized, a lot bigger than Andre at this point in his career. And he used to be a baseball pitcher that could throw in the 90s. I mean, he's got some serious power behind those hands. And although I did pick Waldo, I did sprinkle some cheddar on Andre as an underdog. And it really wasn't that dominant of a fight. Or, you know, Andre de definitely had his opportunities. Waldo, in this fight, used his length and, up, up and his speed, I guess, to his advantage. He was outstriking Andre overall. But not a lot had happened over the course of these three rounds. The salsa boy was living up to his nickname, dancing, kind of clowning and moxing Andre on the veteran, which, you know, 
Respect the game. Respect the pit bull. He's been there, done that, former champion. I am surprised that Andre didn't look to take Waldo down in this fight. Maybe attack some of the weaknesses that Waldo showcased. There was some good leg kicks early in the round. You know, why not bring more of those out second and third round? Chop out that power from underneath them. Net, not even close to a takedown attempt. Uh, maybe get him up against the cage. Get him in the clinch. I know he's a bigger bodied guy. But anything to start to wear on him and, and change the fight up versus just sit there and lacklusterly both these dudes trade strikes. But Andre definitely looked his age here. I was not impressed by Waldo. I really haven't been in his UFC career. He could shove it in my face. He's been winning fights, but he hasn't been classy. He hasn't been technical. He hasn't really showcased a ton. And Andre didn't really put him in a position um, to do much either. And, and he wasn't very active, which I was shocked about. Especially when he's kind of clowning on you in, in the octagon. I expected more of the pit bull to come out. Statistically, I mean, three rounds, full three rounds. Andre only landed 58 total and significant, which is actually eight more than Waldo, who had 50 total, 49 significant. So not a lot of action whatsoever. Waldo extends his winning streak to two. He is now five and one in the UFC. And Andre extends his losing streak to three. He has not won since April of 2022. So where do these guys go next? I mean, name-wise and really skill-wise, this was uh, Waldo's best win of his career. And he's, you know, on a roll, although I'm not that impressed. I don't think it's been very exciting. So how about a, sc a scrap with Rodrigo Nascimento right in the top 15 there? And for Andre, you know, if he doesn't retire, if the UFC still wants him back, a fight against Alir Latifi would make a lot of sense for me. And then moving on, what a brilliant performance by the Hulk. A fight I did get wrong, but I'm not too surprised. Bruno Ferreira with a round one TKO over Phil Haas. Or not a TKO, a round one knockout over Phil Haas. Performance of the night, well-deserved 50 Gs to the Hulk. And man, did Bruno bounce back from a good knockout himself. He got knocked out in his last fight, came into the UFC scene, knocked out a very impressive RoboCop Rodriguez, and then hip tosses a really good wrestler in Phil Haas. I mean, if you're able to just hip toss a guy like that, that's kind of child's play. You don't expect that. So very good job by Bruno. And after he landed some shots like the knee and some ground and pound, I mean, the knee rocked Phil. He put him down. Phil was down. Once he landed those ground and pound shots, it was hard to watch. Brutal things. I don't think we needed those shots. I know the, the ref wasn't in the middle to pull you off, but Phil was clearly out. Phil was out for quite some time. And you could tell when he woke up, he was devastated. Phil has had the potential. You know, he's kind of at the Cody Garbrandt phase of glass chins right now. He's been, once he's touched, he's getting his lights off. But he's been a willing exchange, you know, willing to exchange in the striking bouts with these dudes. Uh, good grappler, well, well coached, well rounded dude, and it just has not come together. That's got to be frustrating. I feel for Phil, but Bruno, this was his night, his performance, and uh, very good wins on his resume thus far. Although he is not a young duckling, um, you, you know, he is thirty in his prime. Statistically, it only took Bruno 24 total strikes, 19 of which were significant, and he did get one takedown in four attempts and the knockdown. And Phil only landed 13 total insignificant strikes. 
he was 0 for 1 in takedown attempts. So Phil now extends his losing streak to 3. He is 3 and 4 since 2021. And all four of those losses have come via knockout. Sometimes you, you keep getting knocked out. You can't recover. You can't hydrate. You're cutting weight. You, you become Cody Garbrandt at a certain stage. But look at Cody now. Doesn't mean that you can't return. I think he needs to take some time off to recover. Try to overcome these knockouts. The brain rattling he's gone through. Maybe some sports psychology. There's a lot at play here. If he really wants to get back into the UFC continue to fight some of the top dudes and be in the rankings on Bruno's end. He has ended the one fight losing streak and begun a new winning streak. He is now three and one in the UFC. And what's next? I think a fight with GM three, Gerald Mearshart, or maybe Edmund Shabazian. I think those would be great fights. The GM three one would be my first choice. And for Phil, I, I, I do think he needs to take that year off. You know, the UFC may cut him anyways, if he is in the UFC, does take some time off in return. I would like to see him fight someone like maybe Abdul Razak Al-Hassan. But the show of the night were these next two dudes, man. We had Mario Batista, Phoenix's own, with a unanimous decision over Ricky Simone. And this fight was basically how I talked about it. I've had some friends DM me on my picks recently and, and at Bose and TKOs on Twitter and Instagram. And a lot of people are picking Ricky Simone, and, you know, I don't doubt him. It helps that I tune into Sean O'Malley and Tim Welch's podcast. You know, they talk about these guys at the lab, which has made me more intrigued in what they can do. And uh, I was pretty confident Mario was going to have the speed and striking advantage, and that was the big difference, plus the cardio. I mean, you look at these two dudes in the octagon. Ricky's got a really thick frame, a little bit more muscular Mario, a little bit more lanky, a little bit more lean, which is going to help with some of that speed and cardio. And R Ricky definitely had the power advantage. I mean, the story of this fight was the pace and the willingness to exchange that Mario displayed this weekend. Next level, dude. Uh, that will bring you very far in a very, very good top 15 in the bantamweight division. And not only that, but Ricky was able to take some big shots. He delivered some big shots. He was re relentless with his wrestling and Mario was able to eat those, which is job well done. Not everyone can eat those, but the ability for Mario to defend the takedowns to, from a guy who usually gets the takedowns when he puts that, puts that much effort in. Um, I think that, you know, and if he did get taken down, like I think he did a couple minutes in the first round, he's able to get up uh, relatively fast. Maybe he'll do something like, reach for a choke or a guillotine to turn around, get up against the cage and get up real quick. Every time he got taken down, he was able to get up really quick, whether it was a reversal or a position to threaten Ricky to be able to just to stand up. Mario is going to be an absolute problem in this bantamweight division, especially with how well-rounded he is. The pace that he can go, that is going to be a, a, a brutal night in the octagon for many dudes in the top 15. And again, he's training at the MMA lab. Some of the best bantamweights in the world. I've already listed out the dudes that they got. So watch out for Mario Batista, man. What a goddamn performance. Now, statistically, Ricky landed 52 total strikes, 45 of those significant. He did have two takedowns, although it was 13 attempts. So again, the, the takedown defense that Mario possesses, absolutely fantastic. Fantastic. 
as I assumed, um, Ricky would have the wrestling, quote-unquote, like takedown advantage, but the grappling advantage, the defense, uh, went Mario's way. Now, Mario landed quite a bit more volume, 118 total strikes, 112 of those significant, although he was 0 for 3 in his own takedown attempts. He almost did about 60-ish, 60-plus more strikes overall. So the very hot Mario extends his winning streak to six. He's cruising in the UFC. He is 8-2 in the UFC since 2019. He's been active. He's been showing out. He does enter the top 15, deservedly so, at number 14. And Ricky extends his losing streak to two. He's only 1-2 since 2022. He has not been the most active fighter. I think it's been hard for him to get fights. He drops down two spots to number 15 in the rankings. Now, I love when a fighter calls his shot and it makes absolutely sense. It's logical. Mario called for Rob Font. I think that is an absolute perfect matchup. It makes a ton of sense. I posted about it on Matchmaker Monday on the socials. It makes sense for both fighters, really. And for Ricky, how about Dominic Cruz or Chris Gutierrez? I don't know if Dom will take that fight, to be honest. At this stage of his career, he wants a high payday, high glamorous fight. A fight with Ricky is not it. I think it does make sense. So I think a fight with Chris Gutierrez is a lot more realistic. But then for me, I mean, how could you not highlight Jim Miller in this card? You kind of thought coming in, he gets a nice win. He's going on UFC 300. Although it took three rounds, Jim Miller with an impressive round three submission via face crank. He basically just wore Gabriel uh, Benitez out over the course of three rounds to the point once he had his back. I don't even think he had a body triangle. He just had hooks in. It was clearly over the chin, kind of on the mouth. The pain, Gabriel was just gassed. He, he, he put the tap up pretty quickly. But Jim Miller, that's more records on records for his resume. Another performance of the night. 50 Gs to the legend. And, uh, I mean, Gabriel stood in the pocket and, and delivered a lot of strikes. Let's not, let's not, you know, underestimate that. The leg kicks really took away the striking ability. I mean, Jim... Can you lower your kick a little bit and do some of those calf kicks? I feel like the kicks that he had were, you know, right up here, uh, right above the knee, and it was pretty red. You could see how Gabriel's leg was uh, plastered away. But if you drop that down to the calf, that's going to make him immobile. The pain is is more sufferable. Um, I, I thought that, you know, they called that out on the broadcast. The play-by-play -play team did a good job there. Regardless, man, Jim was able to make this a slugfest. Um, it, that favored his abilities. He's been there so many times and at 40 years old, it's kind of like Andre when he had his little run early forties, he still looks fast, sharp, durable. I can't wait to see him back in the octagon. He's, he's not past his days of, a, a, of being able to fight in the UFC. That is for sure. Statistically, Jim landed 96 total strikes, 80 of those significant. He had two takedowns, two for two and a submission attempt. And Gabriel landed 84 total strikes and 80 significant. So it's not like this was just a, a pure domination uh, of a fight. You know, Gabriel hung in there, delivered shots back, but Jim was too much. So Jim extends his winning streak to two. He is four and one since 2022. And Gabriel starts a new losing streak after the one fight winning streak. He is now one and two since 2022. Hasn't been super active. 
And another brilliant call out here. Uh, Jim called for a shot at UFC 300. You know, fight fans are screaming for the potential of him and maybe Matt Brown or Paul Felder. He, he listed those names. Paul was on the crew. Paul even posted about wanting to do it. You just got to go through a fight camp. Does the UFC want Paul in the octagon? It's been such a long time off. So I do think the Matt Brown fight's going to happen. They verbally agreed about it on Twitter. It just seems like it makes too much sense. Could be potentially a retirement fight for both of them. Uh, I would assume if Jim wins, Matt retires, win or loss, and Jim uh, maybe fights a couple more. And then for Gabriel, how about a matchup with Mahashete Haizir? I think that would be the match to make. Moving on, in the main event, the short-term turnaround rematch after the Abu Dhabi Desert finacle, we had Magomed Ankalaev with a round two TKO over Johnny Walker. And Johnny doing Johnny things. You know, you think training with John Kavanaugh, new teams, he's going to dial it in a little bit. But he's like a, a kid that's got ADHD, is just a little too crazy and can't contain himself because... Johnny just went full send and blew his load three minutes into the fight. And did he land big shots? Sure. But he was using crazy, and not even crazy spinning techniques, but a high volume of them, which is going to take out a lot of energy. He was taking a lot of energy-sucking kicks, axe kicks, heel kicks, spinning kicks, wild kicks. Sure, was it keeping Megomed on his toes? Sure, in the first three minutes, did Megomed do much, but just kind of measure up Johnny? No. You know, Johnny's long, he's powerful, he is dangerous. But, you know, in the hopes of moving up and potentially fighting five-round fights one day, you can't just go out there like a psycho and expect to be able to dominate. You know, a lot of guys, you could catch them, get a job done. It reminded me a, a lot of the Aljamain Sterling Pewter Yawn first fight. By round three, Aljamain could barely move. He was gassing for air. Well, Magomed was able to withstand the storm because he is a championship potential fighter, a very technical fighter. He controlled the end of the round the last two minutes. He started making it his game plan, and Johnny was just kind of letting it happen. In round two, uh, Magomed was able to find the mark, right? He knocked Johnny down, and when Johnny got down, whew, he smashed him up against the cage with a devastating blow that just straight up shattered Johnny's nose. All Johnny did was reach for his nose. The ref stopped the fight. What Good stoppage. Great on Megomed for not coming in and making his life earlier. You can see this part of his nose go about to here real quick. I mean, he shattered that bad boy. And uh, like Inkali have said, you know, he wanted to keep this fight striking and get the finish with his hands. And in the first fight, although it was only a couple minutes in, it seemed like Megomed wanted to get the takedown, find a path to victory this way. It just shows you how talented he is. He could bring the fight anywhere. Slight work in the office for Megomed Ankalaev. Statistically, it only took Megomed 39 total and significant strikes. He had the knockdown as well. Johnny only landed 26 total, 24 of those significant. Now, Megomed extends his winning streak to 11. He is 11-1-1 with it, that no contest in the UFC. A win for Megomed must feel fantastic at this point, although he is technically 11-1, as he has not had a win since July of 2022 after the TKO of Anthony Smith. Because he had the no contest, he had the draw. Now um, here he is 
finally with the victory. Uh, the, the draw was against Jan Blakovic, and then the no contest, Johnny in Abu Dhabi in October. So Johnny starts a new losing streak. He is 3-2 and two with the no contest since 2022. And Megomed stays at number three in the rankings. Johnny at number seven. If there is any chance for the next fight for Megomed to fight Alex Pereira at UFC 300, I think that makes complete sense. Poetan said fight news coming on social media. I haven't seen any fight news. I don't think that's really looking likely at this point in time because it does seem like Alex is focused on Jamal Hill, which Jamal is not going to be healthy enough for the UFC 300, probably international fight week time. So let's say that that's not the case. Megomed can't fight um, Alex. How about a rematch with Jan Blakovich? Right? They had the draw. Um, I thought Megomed actually won that fight. I don't know if either guys care about that fight or the UFC does. So if not, I think a guy that deserves to be up in the rankings and fight up is Khalil Roundtree Jr. I think everyone is going to be happy for that stylistic of a matchup. And for Johnny, how about a fight with Vulcan Ozdemir? Uh, I'm kind of surprised they haven't fought thus far. Anyways, solid UFC 84 card. Uh, Megomed doing the thing. Jim Miller, the legend, shows out once again. Uh, Mario Batista and Marcus McGee, MMA Lab boys, putting the bantamweight division on notice. A guy who does not get talked a lot about, uh, about a lot. Bruno Ferreira doing the thing. Annoying but effective as Waldo Acosta and the Basharat takeover. Watch out. And that sets us up for the first pay-per-view of 2024. Can't wait. We got UFC 297 in Toronto. Early prelims at 3.30 Pacific time on Fight Pass and ESPN+. Plus. The prelims starting at 5 p.m. Pacific on ESPN News, the main card pay-per-view. There are no good fights that we aren't breaking down. We're breaking down the gist of the card. We have eight Canadians on the card. Most of them are the favorites. Can Canada bring the gold home and deliver in an amazing hometown crowd in Toronto? They've been waiting quite some time to have a, a card back in Toronto. Well, let's kick it off. In the early prelims, Fight Pass or ESPN Plus only, we have Malcolm X. Gordon. 33-year-old fighter with a 14-7 and record taking on Jimmy the Brick Flick. 33 years old with a 16-7 and record. Now, personally, um, you know, I'm not in the UFC. I, I, I couldn't imagine I would know all the details here. But as a guy that's been watching the sport for some time and seeing dudes like this, it is not ideal to be in your prime at 33 years old and being the opening fight on a pay-per-view card in the early prelims. But hey, you know, both of these men have shown some potential. They've had flashes at some point in their career, but they've really struggled when they faced quality opponents. They have not had consistency. A loss by either dude here, your days are going to be numbered in the UFC. You are just kind of fighting to survive. A win here, you can start a new path, have a breath of relaxation, reassess and really just take all your learnings this far in your MMA career to the next level. So to say there is a ton of line, uh, a ton on the line for both of these men is an understatement. Breaking it down, Malcolm has a black belt in BJJ. He's a Bellator alum. 
He's on a two-fight losing streak. He has not won uh, since February of 2022. Six of his 14 wins are via submission, five via knockout. So 11 of his 14 wins are via finish. Five of his seven losses are also via finish. And he does have a three-inch reach advantage. Now, Jimmy, he's an LFA and Contender Series alum. He's on a two-fight losing streak. He hasn't won since December of 2020. He was off for more than two years due to injuries, so it's not like he was fighting every year between that. He is 2-2 two and two overall in the UFC. 14 of his 16 wins are via submission. And ironically enough, six of his seven losses are also via submission. I guess when you're a submission guy, a guy takes you down, smashes you, you can get submitted, but he's tricky. The brick, you got to watch out. Now, I think I think Malcolm is going to have the striking advantage in this, in this scrap. I think that's going to allow him to pull off a, a victory by decision. These guys have a lot of finishes on the record, but getting a, a finish in the flyweight division is never easy. I do think Jimmy will. Jimmy's going to do some wild Jimmy-like things, try to get Gordon down to the canvas, look to get some leg locks, look to get some submissions, butt scoot around, boot scoot and boogie. And while Jimmy's on the feet, you'd almost expect a guy like this just to get kind of reckless with some shots. Where can I get Malcolm down, push him down, push him around, get a little reckless, maybe look for a knockout, and set myself up to get easier sweeps and takedowns for my jiu-jitsu game to get unlocked. I really don't think that'll be the case. I think we'll see some wild 50-50 positions and, ex and some exchanges. That's expected at this weight class. But I am taking Malcolm Gordon. I am putting him on that parlay. We marking that ish down, and we getting that bread. And I think this is one of the Canadian fighters, if I'm, I'm not mistaken. Let me double check. So Canada, get there, get early. Early prelims, support your boys from Canada. Malcolm Gordon looking to get the card started off. The early prelims, back to back to back, all Canada. And then in the prelims, three of the four fights are Canada. Um, not as much in the main card, but early and often show up and show out for your Canadian fighters. Moving on in the early prelims, we have Jasmine Jusa Davicius, 34-year-old fighter with a 9-3 record. Taking on Priscilla, the zombie girl, Cohera, 35 years old with a 12-5 and record. Now, this is going to be a fun stylistic matchup. It's a striking affair between both women who are kind of also in desperate need of a win. They need to really keep that momentum going at this stage of their career. Uh, Priscilla, 35. Jasmine, who's had a little bit of a resurgence at 34. Breaking it down, Jasmine is a Cage Fury and Contender Series alum. She's on a one-fight losing streak. She is 4-2 and two in the UFC, and she does have a three-inch reach advantage. Now, Priscilla teams out of Team Figueredo. I believe that's a new, a new change. She has a purple belt in BJJ. She has the fastest knockout in women's flyweight history at 40 seconds against Shanna Dobson. She is on a one-fight losing streak. She is 2-1 since 2022. I watched her last fight, a loss against Miranda Maverick in the Salt Lake City card. Uh, actually went to a bar after the fight and saw her there, which is kind of cool. 
Some of my friends were taking uh, picks with her. Seven of her 12 wins are via knockout. Very impressive for a woman fighter. Three of her five losses are via submission. Now, again, this is going to be some fun kickboxing exchanges. I do believe Jasmine is going to look for the takedown, though. Uh, mix in takedown temps a little bit early and often to try to eliminate some of Priscilla's power coming forward. She throws recklessly, but if it connects, she gets the knockouts. That's why she has seven of them. I just think the frame that Jasmine has is going to be a big advantage here. I think she's going to wear Priscilla down, move a lot, good defense, takedowns up against the cage, and I think she's going to be able to get a takedown effectively maybe in the second round, find a submission victory opportunity. For that reason, I'm sticking with Canada. I'm taking Jasmine. We are putting her on that parlay. We marking that ish down, and we getting that bread. Moving on. Um... I'll just bring this up. I don't think this fight's great. I'm, I don't really care about this fight. But Johan Lanessi uh, will be fighting right after that for Canada, one of the eight fighters. Uh, the UFC website doesn't even show who the favorite is. I would assume he's not the favorite. So might be one of the only underdogs here. As Malcolm is favored, minus 120. Jasmine, minus 345. Johan is 9-2. He's coming off a loss against Mike Mallett. Mallott uh, beat Darian Weeks, uh, lost to Gabe Green, and won in the Contender Series. So he's 2-2 two two in the UFC. Let's see what the Vegas odds say here. Uh, uh, uh. Um, Johan is the favorite. So all three early prelims uh, fighters from Canada are the favorites. Let's see if they can keep the momentum going. Because in the prelims, we got Canada's own Jillian the Savage Robertson. She's 28 years old with a 12-8 record, taking on Dama DeFerro, Poliana Viana. She's 31 years old with a 13-6 record. Again, Another little chance for Canada to get a taste of sweet, sweet victory here. Both women are in their primes. They're coming off a loss, looking to stack up wins and have a chance to move into the strawweight top 15. So uh, a big moment for both of these women in their primes. Now Jillian, she's got a BJJ and kickboxing style. She trains out of the Goat Shed Academy. She's got a black belt in BJJ. She's an Ultimate Fighter alum, and she has the most finishes in UFC women's flyweight history of, at seven, the most submission wins in UFC women's flyweight history at seven. She also has the most submission wins in UFC women's flyweight division history at six. She is tied with Caitlin Chukagian for most bouts in the UFC women's flyweight division history with 13. She is on a one-fight losing streak, and is 2-2 two and two since 2022. And 9 of her 12 wins are via submission. Now, Pollyanna has a brown belt in BJJ. She's tied with Cynthia Cavillo for the second most submission attempts in the UFC. Uh, strawweight division history with 9. She is a jungle fight alum and former champ. She had one successful title defense in jungle fight. She's on a one-fight losing streak. She is 1-2 since 2022. Eight of her 13 wins are via submission, five via knockout, so 13 of her 13 wins via finish. Very impressive. 
And she does have some length. She's coming in with a four inch reach advantage and a three inch leg reach advantage. I do think this is a paper thin margin in this fight. Very close matchup, two very similar style fighters. I would assume that Pollyanna is going to be able to use her length to outbox Jillian. She may even have the striking speed advantage, but Jillian is more durable. She's willing to take risks in exchange to open up her wrestling, look to get the fight where she wants it to be, and that's what she does best. She has been more active recently. She has fought stiffer competition, and I believe she has improved a, a lot more than Pollyanna with the active fighting, and I think she's going to find a path to victory here. She fights with the, with the coach, Dean Thomas. I'm sure he's going to uh, bring up a good game plan. But Viana, she's going to have opportunities. If she could keep this fight on the feet, it's going to be very interesting. Again, I've been back and forth on this one. I am taking Canada's own. Canada's going to keep on rocking. I'm taking the Savage, but I'm avoiding her on parlays if possible. Moving on. Another Canada showdown. We get Charles Air Jordan, 28 years old, with a 15, 6, and 1 record, taking on Sean the Sniper Woodson, 31 years old, with a 10, 1, and 1 record. Now, from here on, the level of competition and evenness of these fights remaining is fantastic. Um, although this isn't stacked like 298 and 299, there is some really good matchmaking. Maybe just not as much of the superstar power on the card. Charles and Sean, um, they're um, really trying to bring themselves into the top 15. Uh, a win here for both of these men would have them right in the top 15. And uh, I, I think this has a fight of the night potential. I, I, I really do. Breaking it down, Charles has a black belt in BJJ. Uh, he is on a two-fight winning streak and is 3-2 since 2022. Eight of his 15 wins are via knockout, five via submission, so 13 of his 15 wins are via finish. Now, Sean trains out of Glory MMA and Fitness. He is an RFA and Dana White Contender Series alum. He's on a three-fight winning streak. He had a draw in between. He has five one-and-one in the UFC overall, and he is a long, lengthy son of a gun. He has a nine-inch reach advantage and a five-inch leg reach advantage in this fight. Now, when you look at it, Charles is going to be younger. He has more UFC experience, more pro fighting experience overall, and I think he's still improving a lot from fight to fight. He's only 28. He's not even in his prime yet, and Sean really hasn't fought the high level of competition that, that um, um, Charles has. Although he's been winning, right? He doesn't finish his opponents. He goes to a lot of decisions. I think Sean's going to have, you know, the length that's going to help him in the striking. I'm sure that will help to keep Charles at range, make it maybe more of his style, control the center of the octagon. But I do think Charles is going to come in here with an amazing game plan. He's going to be willing to take some risks. He usually showcases that. He's going to put on a great show in front of his home country. He's going to look to get a finish. He's going to look to bring the boom. I think there's going to be so much Canada momentum at this point. He won't have a choice. For that reason, I am taking Charles Jordan, but I'm avoiding him on any parlays where possible. Moving on for the prelim headliner, we got a unique two-time Ultimate Fighter champion, Brad Superman Katona. 
He's 32 years old with a 15-2 record, taking on Garrett Armfield, 27 years old with a 9-3 record. Now, Brad has really earned his way to return to the UFC. He got another tough championship. His only two losses have been against very good fighters. 406 own Poplar Montana, Hunter Azure, who is no longer in the UFC, and Marav Dwalishwili uh, in his first pro UFC fight. I really do believe this fight, he is going to come out like a bat out of hell. He's going to try to keep his roster spot. He, he shouldn't just look to grapple and get a decision victory. I think he knows that's what he's becoming known for. He has to show the UFC brass. He's a fun, exciting fighter. And he has been in some wars, including the, this Ultimate Fighter season. So I do expect him to bring the fight uh, and the war to Garrett Armfield. And I'm not sure if he's going to be ready for it. Breaking it down, Brad has a black belt in BJJ and Shotokan Karate. He is an Ultimate Fighter two-time alum. Two-time champion, the only one to do it. He he competed and won Ultimate Fighter 27 and 31. He is also a Brave alum. When he got cut from the UFC, he went to Brave, became a champion, and he had one successful title defense. He's on a five-fight winning streak, uh, one being in the UFC in the Ultimate Fighter Championship, and that doesn't include his other Ultimate Fighting uh, Ultimate Fighter house fights. So overall in the UFC. In both stints, he is 7-2. Garrett is an LFA and Cage Fury alum. He's on a one-fight winning streak, and he is 1-1 one one in the UFC. Six of his nine wins are via knockout. Two of his three losses are via submission. He will also possess a 5.5-inch reach advantage in this fight. Now, I expect Brad to be really aggressive, to come out striking forward, look to have that takedown opportunity, Smash him once he gets him down. Look for the finish, submission, or ground and pound. But again, I think he's going to come out overly aggressive. And Garrett might have some counter opportunities with his length. So you never know. And Garrett's last two wins have been via finish. So there's definitely a chance. But I think Canada rolls into the prelims undefeated. I'm taking Brad Katona. I am putting him on that parlay. We marking that ish down. And we getting that bread. In the pay-per-view main card. Honestly, I'm shocked that this is the first fight of the card, but let's let us let us let it go down. You got to start the card with some action. We got Arnold Almighty Allen, 29 years old with a 19-2 record and the number three next to his name, taking on Movsar Evloev, uh, the 29-year-old fighter, and uh, sports an undefeated 17-0 record. Um, he is also the number ninth ranked lightweight. So most far is an undefeated fighter, obviously. Um, he is going to get his chance to fight the stip his stiffest competition thus far in his UFC career. His last fight, he almost had a huge upset loss against Diego Lopez, but he was able to overcome the adversity there. And Arnold's only loss in the UFC was to Max Holloway, which you know there's levels to the division. You got Volk, you got Holloway, then everyone follows suit. And, uh, you know, he's already had impressive wins. He's beat Sadiq Youssef, great striker, Dan Hooker, and also Calvin K K uh, Cater. I think Arnold's striking is next level. 
and this is going to be the best striker that Avloev has seen by far in his, his pro career. Breaking it down, Arnold has a brown belt in BJJ. He's a Cage Warriors alum. He's on a one-fight losing streak, but is 10-1 in the UFC. And seven of his 19 wins are via knockout. And he also has a three-inch reach advantage. Now, Movsar has, an, uh, has a wrestling style. He trains at an ATT. He is a master of sport in Greco-Roman wrestling. He is an M1 global alum and former champion with two successful title defenses. He is undefeated on a 17-fight winning streak. Golly! And he is 7-0 in the UFC. There's a reason he's favored by Vegas. He even has a 2.5-inch reach advantage. Now, for me, what makes this fight really interesting is it is a Clash of Styles bout. No doubt, Mosar has the better wrestling and grappling and probably better than Arnold has, has had, but Arnold definitely has better striking ability. Mosar hasn't fought the striker, uh, a striker at the level of Arnold, um, and Arnold maybe hasn't fought the level of grappler that Avloev is. Uh, his last grappler uh, heavy fighter was probably Gilbert Melendez, but that was in 2019, so it's been some time. So we're going to get a lot of firsts for two really good fighters that are trying to fight for a title. The question is going to come down. Can Movsar take Arnold down and control him for a path to victory? There's a difference between taking him down and not doing anything with it. I do think he's going to be able to get Arnold down, but I think Arnold's going to find his shots. I think he's going to be able to get back up, defend a lot of takedowns, and Mozart is going to just be Greco-Roman wrestling, and that's not going to be enough for the scorecards. I wouldn't be surprised if this goes to decision, but I also wouldn't be surprised if Arnold got the finish. For that reason, I am taking the almighty Arnold Allen. We put him on that parlay. We marking that ish down, and we getting that bread. Plus, he's an underdog at currently on the UFC website, plus 140. The underdogs are coming out to eat. <laughs> Moving on, we got Chris Action Man Curtis, 36 years old with a 30 and 10 record and the number 13 next to his name, taking on the power bar, Mark Andre Barriol, 33 years old with a 16 and 6 record. Now again, maybe not so much, but this is kind of a stylistic clash. Chris being a boxer striker and Mark being a cardio fighter, not necessarily a boxer, but a grappler, clincher, uh, striker. So whose style is going to come out on top? Well, Chris has been very active since he's been in the UFC. He has fought a lot stiffer competition and has a lot more quality wins on his record. But like anybody, is he going to be able to outlast the cardio machine? That is the question. Well, breaking it down, Chris trains out of extreme couture. He has a purple belt in BJJ. You would never know it. <laughs> Two of his last three fights have been fight of the night or performance of the night. He continues to show up and show out against all odds. I mean, I think this may be the first, maybe second UFC fight he's been favored. He was the 2021 comeback fighter of the year. He is a contender series, PFL, and icon fighting alum. He's on a one fight losing streak. He had a no contest as well. And he has two and two with the no contest since 2022. 17 of his 30 wins are via knockout. 
Now, Mark trains out of Kill Cliff FC. He has a blue belt in BJJ. He's on a two-fight winning streak, both of them this year, or in 2023. <clears throat> I forget, it's 2024. And 10 of his 16 wins are via knockout. This is going to be a high-paced, action-packed affair. This is going to continue the momentum of the main card, the awesomeness, the good stylistic matchmaking, and that's probably why it's more up in the card. I think Chris, though, with the team, Eric Nixick, Sean Strickland, the game plan is going to be as great as, uh, as it can be. With all the pro experience, with 40 uh, pro fights, his fighting IQ is really high. He's a very sav savvy striker. And although the power bar can go for days, I think Chris will be a little bit measured, find his openings. He's going to find a way to get the victory. For that reason, I am taking Chris Curtis. I am putting him on the parlay. We marking that ish down and we getting that bread. Moving on. We have Neil the Haitian sensation Magni. 36 years old with a 28 and 12 record and the number 13 next to his name. Taking on Mike Proper Malat. 32 years old with a 10, 1, and 1 record. It is the final opportunity for Canada to do its thing and the biggest stage of Mike's career. And to be honest, we're probably in this fight getting one of Canada's finest all-around talents in the UFC. He's in the start of his prime. He's getting his stiffest competition in his home country. He gets to showcase where he stands in the welterweight division. And Neil's been there, done that. He's fought pretty much everyone in the division, so we're about to find out. Breaking it down, Neil trains at an elevation fight team. He has a brown belt in BJJ. He's an Ultimate Fighter alum. He has the most wins in UFC welterweight history with 21. He's got the longest fight time in UFC welterweight division history with over 6 hours, 32 minutes, and 34 seconds. He's got the most bouts in UFC welterweight division history with 31 of them things. He's tied with Roger Huerta and Kevin Holland for most wins in a calendar year. He had five in 2014. He's the only fighter in UFC history to have five bouts in two calendar years. And the most decision wins in UFC history with 14. He's tied with the likes of George St. Pierre, Kamaro Usman, and Bilal Muhammad for the most unanimous decision wins in UFC welterweight division history at 10. He's got the most decision bouts in welterweight division history with 17. Also the most split decision wins in welterweight history at four. He's got the most significant strikes landed in UFC welterweight history with 1,356. He's on a one fight losing streak. He's only three and three since 2022, but he's been there. He's active. A lot of records here. You know, not the best to have all the decision victories, but he's out there. He works hard. He grinds. Six of his 11 wins are via submission, and he is sporting a 7-inch reach advantage and a 4-inch reach advantage in this fight. A lot of length advantages here. It'll be interesting to see what the lengthy fighters can do. Now, Mike has a black belt in BJJ. His last two fights have been performance of the night. He is a World Series of Fighter, Bellator, Cage Fury, and Contender Series uh, alum. He is on a six-fight winning streak and is 4-1 in the UFC. 
Six of his 10 wins are via submission, four via knockout, so all 10 of his wins have come via finish. Now, I've really had to think about this fight. If I'm Neil, I'm sticking with my typical game plan. I'm pressuring Mike. I'm getting him up against the cage. I'm trying to get him in a clinch, stay away from his power striking. I want to close the distance, tire him out, and over the course the course of three rounds, put him in a cardio hell and get a decision victory by outpointing him, getting on my bike, and outvoluming him. I do think that's possible. Mike has not been in a three-round fight since 2015 in Bellator, where he had a draw. Neil is as durable as it gets. He's going to keep coming at him. I do believe Mike is a better technical striker and is going to be too much for Neil to handle like Ian Gary was, but this may be closer than people think, but I am taking Canada rocking the card. Prop Mike proper Malat's going to get the roof off. We are putting him on that parlay. We marking that ish down and we getting that bread. So Canada can celebrate. The beverages will be flowing and then we get two title fights to round out the evening. We get Raquel Rocky Pennington, 35 years old with a 15 and 9 record, and the number two next to her name, taking on Shitara Myra Bueno Silva, 32 years old with a 10, 2, and 1 record, and the number three next to her name. Now, this is, again, a very, very closely contested fight. I'm going to say that Raquel is more proven. She's a proven veteran who has fought the best competition in the division for years. She is a durable striker. She is well-rounded and has really improved her game since 2020. I kind of wrote her off, and she kept doing her thing. Now, Myra has recently been popped with the uh, Ritalinic Acid, Ritalinic, Ritalinic, Asic, um, that she said was from an ADHD medication, but she was suspended by USADA and is just getting off that in time for this fight. I personally think the longer this fight goes, the more advantage uh, that Raquel's going to have. But Myra does have great finishing potential and traits with her striking and her grappling. But breaking it down, Raquel has a purple belt in BJJ. Raquel is an ultimate fighter and Invicta alum. She has the most bouts in UFC women's bantamweight division history with 16. The most total fight time in UFC women's bantamweight division history with 3 hours, 52 minutes, and 33 minutes of octagon time. She has the most significant strikes landed in bantamweight division history with 922. As well as the most total strikes at 1,310. The most decision wins at 9, most decision bouts at 13, and most unanimous decision wins in the UFC women's bantamweight division at 6. And she's coming in on a 5-fight winning streak. Just had a baby not that long ago with UFC's own Tatiana Suarez. Now, Myra trains out of American Top Team. She has a brown belt in BJJ. Or not Tatiana Suarez, I'm sorry. <laughs> I want to correct myself here. She's been out for a while. It is Tisha Torres. 
Tisha, sorry, Tatiana. Tatiana's just got injured, is out of the fight. So her and um I forgot her name already. Uh, blinking. I'm ready for the basketball game. And Tisha Torres. Tisha Torres and Raquel Pennington. Correction, correction. Now, Myra trains out of American Top Team. She has a brown belt in BJJ. Three of her last four fights have been performance of the night or fight of the night. She's been showing up. She's been showing out. She's really been on a roll. She is a Dana White Contender Series Brazil alum. She's on the three-fight winning streak. Would have been four without that USADA issue against Holly Holm. She locked up Holly Holm, I think, in a ninja choke, if I remember right. Uh, Ritalinic acid, I think that's how you say it. So I don't know much about it. She got popped. She's trying to say tainted substance or ADHD medication. Obviously, they, they booked her a fight while suspended to come off suspension, so it must not be that big of an issue, but you never know. Seven of her ten wins are via submission. Now, Myra has fought at a very high level in 2022 and 2023. I don't think a five-round fight is a disadvantage for her. Uh, or I think a five-round fight is a disadvantage for her unless she can score a finish over the very experienced and durable Rocky Raquel. Now, Raquel hasn't been finished since she was TKO'd in her bantamweight title appearance against the GOAT, Amanda Nunez, Back in 2018. The only other time Raquel has been finished was 2012 when she got choked out against Kat Zinganu, throwing an old G name there, back in Invicta before she was even in the UFC. So I do think Raquel is going to outpoint her in her striking. I think she will be measured and patient over the course of the five rounds. She will be too much for Myra. Myra will have opportunities for big shots. I think Rocky's going to be able to eat them and keep outpointing her. She may get positions to get grappling submission attempts, but Rocky will be prepared. For that reason, I'm taking Raquel Pennington. I am putting her on my parlay. We marking that ish down, and we getting that bread. And let me see, is she an underdog too? I think she is, if I remember right. Oops. Jeez, come on now. Can't type. So Sean's the favorite, and Raquel's a plus 140 underdog. We're hitting the dog. Again, the dogs are coming to eat. Hoo-hoo! We got Raquel. We got Arnold Allen, both at plus 140. And you sprinkle in... I thought there was another one. Oh, yeah, the main event. Dricus Duplessis at plus 110. Little fun little... Underdog parlay, some underdog hits for those of you looking to make some bread. But that does set us up for the main event. We get Tarzan, Sean Strickland, 32 years old with a 28-5 and record, taking on Steel Knox, Dracus Duplessis, or DDP, some people call him, 30 years old with a 20-2 record and the number two next to his name. Man, is this fight going to be very interesting. I believe it's going to be a true toss-up fight. People that say this is what's going to happen, I don't really think they know what they're talking about. Because no one's going to know what's going to No one knows what's going to happen in a Sean Strickland versus anyone fight and very much the same of a DDP versus anyone fight. Dracus is definitely going to have the power advantage. There is also a little bit of mental game that has happened here. With the whole incident at the last pay-per-view, 
uh, DDP punching Sean across the crowd, the scrap that they got in, plus some of the presser, you know, who's going to lose the mental battle? That could be interesting as well. But outside of the power advantage, I think DDP is going to push Sean and bring the fight to him. Tricus has had an interesting few years in the UFC. I thought, you know, I, I remember watching him uh, in person in Vegas against uh, Brad Tavares. I had picked Brad and how gassed out he got in middle around two and round three. But he had a big nose issue. He went on the Joe Rogan podcast. They talked about his nose issue. He got it fixed up. So maybe that'll help his breathing and cardio. We didn't really get to see it in the Robert Whitaker fight because he finished him early in the second. But I think this is very relevant because at the pace he delivers in his fights, there is absolutely a concern of him gassing out. He's a big dude for the weight class, and he goes with a lot of crazy, powerful strikes. This is his first ever five-round fight. And we saw how well-conditioned Sean Strickland is. He doesn't really look like the, the, the most shredded guy, but he was in Izzy's face and, and brought the fight to Izzy and gassed the very good Israel Adesanya out. And Sean still looked like he could fight after five rounds. In his recent images, which didn't show this in uh, the embedded, he looked like he had like a freaking six to eight pack going on. Looked like he was in way better shape than he's ever been in. And watching back Dracuz versus Robert Whitaker. I do think there is a real possibility that DDP can finish Sean in this fight. You know, he rocked a very good, durable Bobby Knuckles with the freaking jab. Almost finished him right as Robert was taking a step forward. He just popped him, sat him down, uh, got him seeing stars, and was able to get the finish. He is going to come at Sean with some serious power. Sean has the Philly Shell defense. Uh, there's definitely an opportunity for him to, to avoid that because... There's also the grappling aspect. Although um, when it comes to grappling, we've been told how good Sean's wrestling is, but we haven't seen it in quite some time. And although Dracuz got taken down in the Robert Whitaker fight, he outgrappled Robert, who's a very good grappler himself. And he's defeated grapplers in Derek Brunson and Brad Tavares. So there is a ton of storylines here. Now, Sean trains out of Extreme Couture. He has a black belt in BJJ. He's a King of the Cage alum and former champion. He had five successful title defenses there. His last two fights have been performance of the night. He's been shocking the world. The most significant strikes, he has the most significant strikes attempted in the UFC middleweight bout at 428 against Uriah Hall. And in that fight, he also had the most significant head strikes with 173. He was the 2020 comeback fighter of the year after his bike accident. He's on a three-fight winning streak all in 2023. He's been rolling. You know, he's sparring all day, every day, taking anyone on. And 11 of his 28 wins are via knockout. Now, Dracuz is an orthodox fighter. He has a second-degree black belt in kickboxing. Three of his last five fights have been performance of the night or fight of the night. These guys have been taking over the UFC by storm. They've been showing up and showing out. He is on an eight-fight winning streak. 6-0 in the UFC, 10 of his 20 wins are via submission, 9 via knockout, so 19 of his 20 wins are via finish. I've been against Dracuz a lot in his UFC career. Just watching his technical striking ability and the body language that he has, especially before the nose injury, he just looks gassed out, slow, and sloppy. His striking has never impressed me. 
He goes for broke a lot, long, big, loopy shots, and he definitely has a non-traditional grappling game, but he really showed how effective he can be in the grappling department against Whitaker, and he has improved his defense overall um, on his UFC run. And he's in his prime. Now, Sean is going to be a tough test for him stylistically. This is a guy who is hard to hit. He's got that Philly shell defense. So if you're, you're swinging with a lot of power over the course of five rounds, if you're missing, it's going to gas you up. Um, plus, Sean pushes the pace. You know, I think Dracus is going to come forward with the power and Sean's going to respect that. But Sean's going to come in and flirt with danger. He's going to try to exhaust you over the course of the five rounds. But I honestly, I've been back and forth here. I think Dracus continues to finish fighters and impress everyone. I think he's going to find a way to get a finish here. Whether it's a submission from Tyron Sean out or hitting him with too many big shots, I very well could be wrong, but I have to give you guys a pick. That's my pick. Sean very well could break him over the course of five rounds and exhaust him where he gets a late finish or just gets a decision victory in his first title defense. But I am taking DDP as the underdog. I'm avoiding him on a parlay, but with those other underdogs, I might just do a little underdog for, some, for a big payday. But what a main event. Again, if you think you know, you have absolutely no idea. Nobody does. That's what makes it great. Eight Canadians. Can they bring the country down? Can they bring the house down in Toronto? I'll be tuning in. And I can't wait to break it down for you in episode 32 next week as there will be no UFC action. We get a week off to end the month and, uh, you know, enjoy some championship round football after the divisional round this week. But then in February, on February 3rd, we get a decent Apex uh, Apex event back in the Apex. We got Roman Delidzi and Nasser Dean Amavov as the headliner. That day, there is also the road to the UFC Season 2 Finals that didn't get to take place earlier in the year. But then us MMA fans can rejoice. We got the PFL Supercard. We get grappling events. We have 11 consecutive UFC weekends of back-to-back-to-back UFC action. I'm your host, Shane Gillette. I will see you next week.